It is November 20th, 2011, and nearly 200 people are gathered at the Mississippi studios. What the fuck is this? Bernice, you said we were going to a D.B. Cooper show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a fucking D.B. Cooper show. In fact, this is the D.B. Cooper 40th anniversary spectacular. And the show is indeed brought to you by Kick-Ass Oregon History. Welcome to a special edition of Kick-Ass Oregon History, featuring the sounds of our live D.B. Cooper night from Mississippi Studios with your host, historian Doug Kane Crispin. Because we all know that Oregon is filled with some boring stories. But there's also a shit ton of kick-ass stories out there. My name is Doug Kent Crispin. I am, as you've probably guessed, the revolved resident historian for ORHistory.com. I used the fuck word now and again. We have an amazing evening tonight filled with rock, history, kick-ass raffle prizes, a gender-conflicted burlesque dancer, and I dare you, I dare you to say I'm not that innocent wasn't hot when done by Doug. We even have stories of weird Thursday morning phone calls that I received this fucking week. A couple people have asked me, how long have you been planning the 40th anniversary spectacular? And the short answer to that is about a year we've been trying to put this show together. And I think it shows tonight. I think it shows. And I want to thank you all for coming. I do not take your attendance for granted. I want to thank you. But the genesis to this project goes back to about 1995. You see, I used to be in this rap band here in Portland. Um, you think I'm shitting. I'm not shitting. We're called the Brown Bag Crew. For real. There's a couple of you motherfuckers out here. I mean, my friends out here right now. And it went, we had this idea, right? And it went something like this. It went. Dude, we should do a fucking D.B. Cooper show. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Punk and rap, brown bag crew, nervous fucking Christians, funky about logic, the jimmies. <laughs> That's right. You know the coolest fucking part, right? What's that? It's the D.B. fucking Cooper show. He would have to come to his own show, right? Ladies and gentlemen, 16 years later, the logic still stands. I stand behind it. I put his name on the fucking guest list. Let's see if he drops in. Now, no fucking texting your friend. Just tell him D.B. Cooper. It's fucking five bucks, man. Now, I'm going to give you the who, well, I mean, kind of, uh, the what's, the where's, the when's, and all that bullshit, and do a play-by-play of the only unsolved hijacking in United States aviation history. So let's click to the next slide. We don't have one of those fancy things. This is uh, Kick-Ass Oregon History. It's what we do. We do podcasts about awesome Oregon history. You can check us out at orhistory.com. There's a picture of myself, uh, my compadre, Andy Lindbergh, and then some dude, Tom McCall or something. I don't know who the fuck he is, but he's, he's on there too. And uh, let's click to the next one. So D.B. Cooper, oh, wait, this is a panel. I got to step aside so you got to see this. This is a panel for the ADD, including my pops. Is my pops up there right now? This is all you need to fucking know, the play-by-play right here. Thank you very much for coming. You can all go home now. <laughs> Next slide. 
Dan Cooper appears out of the mist like a fucking specter. You know, and a lot of people say, they say, hey, what happened to D.B. Cooper? What happened to D.B. What did D.B. Cooper do? That, that is very interesting shit, man. Uh, but y- the thing that really gets me is where the fuck did he come from? I mean, how did he get to the airport? Was it a connecting flight? Did somebody drop him off? Did he take a bus? Oh, wait, this Portland man, he rode a bike. Because if we can answer this, just this, this little teeny tiny germ, maybe we can get to the start of solving this mystery of who D.B. Cooper was. Because for all we know, he was born and he died in a few hours. <laughs> I'm serious, serious. That's all we know about this man. And it is just... All right. It gets obsessive, as I talked about with Jeff Gray one day. So Dan Cooper just fucking appears at the ticket counter and with a $20 bill. Well, while we're at it, here you go. Here's some more. <laughs> with a $20 bill, he buys a one-way ticket on Northwest Airlines Flight 305 to Seattle. He asks the salesman. I can't quite see it because of my awesome beer cozy podium. That's a 727, isn't it? And it was. Dan Cooper gets on the plane. Next slide. Fucking smooth criminal, man. (laughs) He's dressed in a dark suit with sunglasses. Very Jake and Elwood blues. But thinner clip-on tie. He orders a bourbon and seven. And he pays for his drink with a, that's right, a $20 bill. He tries to trip the stewardess, but she declines to accept the gratuity, citing Northwest Airlines policy. Cooper hands the stewardess an envelope. Inside of it is a note that says he has a bomb. He opens his attache case and shows something to said stewardess that looks like a bomb. The note says, that's the next slide, Chip. (laughs) I I was going to have my computer here, but don't do that here. I want you to sit beside me. You are being hijacked. And this is stewardess Tina Mucklow. Anybody here related to Tina Mucklow? Please say no, please say no. Because she's so fucking hot. She's like 70s porn star hot. And I'm looking at her. Look at that fucking blonde hair. I'm thinking, does the carpet match the drapes? Yeah, I'm thinking that. I'm sorry. You know, and is everybody, is she pretty hot? Okay, she went and joined a convent, you sick fucks. After all this, she went and joined it. But that's kind of hot, too, huh? That's fucked up. (laughs) Fucked up. So anyways, he gives her this note, and the shit is on. Cooper, by all accounts, was indeed a smooth criminal. He was very polite, and he seemed very calm at this stage of the flight. He engaged in chit-chat with Tina, sitting in row 18, sipping his cocktail. Cooper chain-smoked Raleigh cigarettes and let his plan play out as the plane landed in Seattle. Four parachutes and, next slide, $200,000 in 20s were brought to the airport. That's $10,020 bills. It's indeed a lot of fucking money. And it's a bulky bundle, too. It weighs 21 pounds. Cooper sent stewardess Tina Mucklow off the plane to collect the booty which, contrary to popular cultural references, was not in an attache case, but in a canvas bag. Not really, like, that with a big old dollar sign on it, but that, <laughs> that would have just been so much more fucking rock and roll. The bag was so heavy that when Tina came back on the plane, she dropped it on the floor behind her and drug it like some dirty laundry. All of the serial numbers on the 20s were recorded by the authorities all of the serial numbers. Next slide. There's the digits. These are printed in area newspapers, and uh, people will go fucking nuts looking at the 20s in their wallets, going through that. Uh, before computers, huh? Before fucking computers. Wait, is David Horowitz still here? He remembers the days before computers. He's, he's a cool dude down at PSU. I dig him. 
Once he had the dough and the chutes, Cooper ordered the passengers to be released in Seattle. Most hadn't even known that they'd been hijacked. Cooper was such a smooth criminal. Cooper then proceeded to give some very specific, very technical instructions to the flight crew. He said, fly to Mexico City. Don't worry about being tired. I got a bunch of, bunch of Benzedrine in my pocket. <laughs> Bennies. Speed. Yet again, proving that Portland has always been Tweakerville. <laughs> he also said, next slide, slow and low. Step aside here. He wanted the landing gear down, the flaps at 15 degrees. He wanted them to fly under 10,000 feet with the aft stair down. Hey, kick-ass Doug, what the fuck's an aft stair? Okay, so imagine the belly of the 727, and at the back, there's a stairway that comes down. It was designed made by Boeing, so you didn't have to have a jetway or one of the mobile air stairs come up. It would just pop down in the back of the plane. It was integral to the plane. Now, this configuration that Cooper asked for, again, is very specific. And I don't know if you guys remember, next slide, hearing about Air America in Laos and Vietnam. But these were contracted air services that were used to supply the Hmong and other Montagnards with supplies, ammunition, uh, heroin, came out of their spots by CIA contracted folks, including Evergreen Aviation, which is down there in McMinnville. And they supplied all of these very isolated mountain outposts who were extremely anti-communist. Next slide. They had 727s in their fleet. And they used to fly at 10,000 feet with the flaps at 15 degrees, the landing gears down, and the ass stairs deployed as they would throw supplies and parachuting agents into these Montagnard villages. This is a picture of one of those planes, I believe in 67. Do I have the date up there? Yes, yeah, 67 at the airport in Saigon. Air America, at this moment, should not be confused with that shitty Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> Next slide. This is the Navy Back 6, one of the parachutes that Cooper was given. Cooper had some difficulty with the money bag. He'd probably been expecting a backpack or a knapsack, not a canvas bag. So the stewardess, Tina Mucklow, witnessed him deploying one of the reserve chutes inside the cabin, which he then cut the parachute shrouds from and tied him to this canvas bag and furthermore secured that to his body. Next slide. If any of you guys heard our podcast on D.B. Cooper, episode one? <laughs> well, uh, feel free to join me. Cooper turned to the nearest possible exit. Next slide. And deplaned like a fucking <laughs> boss. That's right, bitches. Like a fucking boss. And that last step was indeed a real bitch. Especially with the conditions that Cooper faced. This was a very stormy night. This is the night before Thanksgiving. 200 mile, mile per hour winds is what Cooper faced due to the speed of the aircraft. Freezing rain and sleet, the temperature was at negative seven. Remember, he's clad in this very fashionable, but thin suit and thin overcoat. Many speculated that the sheer force of the storm and the jet slipstream would have literally blown the loafers off of Cooper's feet. <laughs> he would have looked down and seen nothing on that dark night. Just like our clouds up above, which you can't see right now, there are two distinct layers of storm clouds between Cooper and the ground. My theory, and this is just my theory, I'm not an expert on the subject, the man that is, is over there, but my theory is that Cooper was roaring on fucking rocket fuel, <laughs> bennies and bourbon, money lust, having him literally drunk from the $200,000 that was fucking strapped to his body. Feeling like a superhero, I think none of these earthly matters, such as temperatures and winds, concern Cooper. 
all jacked on speed. It was man, nature, and profit in the skies above the Pacific Northwest. I think I don't need to take that fucking test right now from what I just said. Man, nature, and profit, Pacific Northwest. He took that final step and Cooper jumped. Next slide, please. So what happened to all that Cooper cash? Tenejo, baby. Mexican beach. No, um, we don't know what happened to all that cash. Next slide. Six grand of it, roughly, was found on Tina Bar, right up pretty close to the coup uh, in the Columbia River on the bar there. Uh, there were three bundles together, so it's not like a couple bills just washed up on shore. There were three of them done. Uh, there's a fellow named Tom Kay who has this great, great website called Citizen Sleuths. If you want to look a little bit more into this, um, this check out Citizen Sleuths. But six grand was found by a 10-year-old boy named Brian Ingram in 1980. But that tells me there's $194,000 of this money still out there. So that's what I'm going to leave you with, ass kickers. I'm giving you the play-by-play -play here. And next, are there many folks that are on Twitter out here tonight? Okay, does anybody here follow at Ancient Portland? Yeah, all right. Well, at Ancient Portland is coming up on this stage right now. And for those of you that uh, don't know at Ancient Portland, uh, he's a fucking odd, <laughs> odd dude. And uh, he tends to write about ancient Portland, as in Portland from the 1400s, 1500s. So he's going to come up here on stage, and I have no fucking idea what he's going to do, to be perfectly honest. Uh, at Ancient Portland is the nom de tweet of J. Millville Lipstick, pioneer in ancient Portlandian history, honorary member of the Royal Portlandian Academy of Natural Philosophy, and the Beavertonian Beefeaters Legion. He's the author of In Search of Sasquatch Milk, which won the Learned Greshamite Citizens Award in 2007, and a translator of ancient Portlandian poetry entitled The Melancholy Lumberjack. When not wintering on Wizard Island, he's conducting bold experiments in electro-pharynology. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, at Ancient Portland. My name is uh, J. Melville Lipschitz. Herr Professor Dr. J. Melville Lipschitz. You can all call me uh, Herr Professor Doctor, if you prefer. <laughs> and to those of you in the Twitterverse, I'm known as Ancient Portland. Uh, may I have the next slide, please? Now, I'd like to apologize for my unfortunate appearance this evening. Uh, my experiments in uh, electrophrenology went terribly awry <laughs> this weekend, and my seem to have suffered some serious burns, uh, but nonetheless, my dedication to uh, the scholarship of Doug um, has uh, inclined me to uh, come make an appearance to cite my uh, wretched uh, physical condition. Uh, nonetheless, I'm delighted to talk to you tonight about the prehistory of D.B. Cooper. Now, most of you are aware of uh, the D.B. Cooper about which uh, Doug spoke so eloquently, but I'd like to uh, talk to you about uh, the prehistory of this phenomenon, which is in fact an archetypal one, and that actually goes back far before uh, the 1970s and deep into ancient uh, Portlandian history. Um, uh, next slide, please. May I have the next slide, please? Thank you. Now, just to say a few words about uh, ancient Portland and, and what we endeavor to do is uh, we examine the, the much neglected period of Portlandian history uh, from uh, roughly, uh, well, the prehistoric period up until uh, the 18th century. Um, and ma many of you may not be familiar with this, but we do extensive archival research. Uh, for example, uh, this is a, a heroic uh, Portlandian <laughs> lumberjack, um, and uh, in 
in an engraving, excuse me, from uh, the 16th century, uh, published in uh, Historic uh, Irvington. Um, uh, and it's this heroic prehistory of Portland that, that I wish to uh, elevate and, and celebrate uh, this evening. Uh, but uh, uh, next slide, please, uh, just to give you some background. Uh, what I, uh, my particular specialty is uh, this early history of Portland when uh, Portland, Portlandia, in fact, was but one of many tribes that was, uh, uh, rival had rival tribes and factions, uh, such as uh, the Kuvites, uh, seen here, uh, who lived across the water. Uh, uh, next slide, please. Uh, the Clackamites, um, whom some of you may already be uh, familiar with uh, from their ancient uh, town center. Next slide, please. May I have the next slide, please? Um, we seem to have missed one. Well, the Greshamites, uh, if we might turn back to the Greshamites. Uh, there they are. You've probably recognized them shirtless on the max. Um, <laughs> but what my real topic tonight is not so much uh, ancient Portlandian history, which you can probably take classes at, uh, PCC or PSU, uh, should you feel so inclined, but in fact, uh, to talk about uh, the early history of D.B. Cooper. Um, so, uh, may I have the next slide, please? Now, um, <laughs> as early as the 15th century, uh, there was oral <laughs> tradition um, of uh, criminal masterminds uh, who had stolen a great deal of money and um, eluded authorities. Uh, Portlandian police were and soldiers were ineffective uh, to stop him. Um, and there was a great deal of confusion about exactly what this character might look like. <laughs> and what I'm showing you here is a, a fascinating uh, document uh, from the 15th century, now they're preserved in, in the Portland Art Museum, um, of various uh, attempts to uh, describe what uh, this Cooper character might look like. As you can see, there was a great deal of confusion um, uh, ranging, uh, in fact, from well, a Christ-like figure, which I think was the theme of Doug's uh, talk, actually, um, <laughs> uh, uh, to, uh, well, a lion, an old man, um, a deer, and an image of death itself. Absolutely fascinating uh, from a historical perspective, uh, not to mention a Freudian one. Um, but this shows how early on already there was a great deal of confusion about uh, the mystery of this character and the absolute fascination uh, with who uh, he might be. Now, even as early as, as the 16th century, um, there were, in fact, a great deal of controversy about uh, how, uh, who this might be. So may I have the next slide, please? Um, and this mystery was, well, to some degree solved. I suppose today we wouldn't consider it really solved, but um, by th those standards, by uh, the great astronomer, Albertus of Abernethy, um, whose work you, you may have uh, come across, um, who published a, a fascinating work uh, published in Estacada um, uh, <laughs> called De Mysterio Cooperii um, about um, the identity of this already legendary figure uh, by the 15th century. Um, and here you see um, Albertus uh, confidently uh, holding uh, the uh, instruments of his profession, which is astronomer. Now, what on earth would an astronomer have to do with D.B. Cooper? Well, next slide, please. Um, oh, and I'm sorry, this is, this is one uh, last uh, police sketch. He, he, he became uh, quite fascinated by finding this image, um, which uh, some of you may have seen this character on, on the number 12 bus. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, he, Albertus of Abernathy was convinced that this had some connection uh, to the true uh, D.B. Cooper. And in fact, he believed his name was uh, Dominicus Bartholomeus uh, Cooperius, um, and uh, that perhaps he could be better identified. So, um, and, and these, I, I should say, come from the, the archives of the Portland Police Museum um, here in Portland. So, uh, next slide, please. When they're not out busy pepper spraying people. <laughs> um, <they're>, um, <laughs> uh, so, 
what Albertus of Abernathy surmised was that astronomical observations had seen a falling body um, on, in fact, uh, this very date uh, in uh, 1312. Um, and this is an artist's uh, representation of the falling of uh, D.B. Cuperius, uh, <laughs> who uh, um, is falling uh, from the uh, flying chariots on, on which he uh, had uh, supposedly hijacked. Here, this is not, uh, I, I would say, not the most flattering angle from which uh, all of us would hope to be portrayed, but, uh, well, there we have it. Um, uh, may I have the next slide, please? Um, tied to this legend uh, was uh, an interesting story uh, that's illustrated here, it's a later artist interpretation from the 17th century of uh, D.B. Caparius, uh, who here uh, weighs his um, ill-gained uh, gold. Now, uh, this is based on the oral tradition, again, that a peasant had told that while walking through the woods of Oregon um, in the 14th century, uh, he had come upon a cottage and in it seen a strange man wearing dark glasses um, and uh, who had grown a beard um, and uh, who was weighing vast quantities of gold. And according to Albertus of Abernathy, he had in fact uh, solved the mystery of who was this mysterious D.B. Cooperius, or Cooper as we of course know him today. Um, next slide, please. Uh, now let us jump ahead uh, to the 19th century. Um, and what's fascinating here is we find this legend, the same one that uh, Doug so eloquently recounted, um, recurring again in the 19th century. Um, so uh, here we have an illustration, uh, somewhat imaginary, by an artist named Thomas Lentz, of course, from, from Lentz itself, uh, named, uh, named uh, Dominique Baptiste Coupé. Uh, and uh, there was a great deal of fascination with this character. He was an extremely uh, charming, aristocratic, uh, well-spoken uh, criminal. Um, and uh, this is one of the few uh, illustrations we have. You see his um, quite um, au courant uh, fashion-wise. Um, and th this is from a, f a fascinating uh, book, uh, uh, D.B. Coupé, uh, Mort au Vivant, uh, that's uh, preserved in the rare book collection, the Montgomery County Library. I, I really encourage you to, to all take a look at it. Um, 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 and you see how, how quite dashing he is and extremely cordial. Um, so uh, uh, next, please. Now, upon hijacking, and in this, this version of the legend, um, it was a hot air balloon that he hijacked. <laughs> um, and uh, first thing he did upon hijacking, uh, get, getting on the hot air balloon was uh, to order an absinthe. Um, and what's absolutely fascinating is here in the uh, Oregon Historical Society, we in fact have the very glass and absinthe spoon that uh, uh, Coupé himself uh, used uh, when he, uh, on this fateful day, when he hijacked uh, this balloon in order to uh, steal uh, large sums of money. Um, so uh, again, I, I would encourage you, if you're not members of the Oregon Historical Society to, to become so, so you, you may see these, this and other uh, fascinating objects uh, from our state's history. Um, next slide, please. Um, so here we see uh, Coupe uh, himself um, in a hot air balloon. Um, don't ask me how this photograph was taken, it's quite <laughs> remarkable. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but here he is um, having uh, received the large sums of cash. Uh, interestingly, the, the great weight of the cash, in fact, weighed down his hot air balloon substantially, but as you all know, of course, he did manage to escape over the woods of Oregon and to uh, jump out of the balloon. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, the point of my, my very brief uh, dissertation here, which I hope you all read in my much, much, much longer book on the subject, <laughs> is uh, that uh, D.B. Cooper is, is not so much uh, a historical figure as uh, Doug may have intimated, and other historians, I suppose, this evening may intimate, uh, but so much as he is an archetype. And I would say that recent uh, theories by Jungian uh, psychologists uh, suggest uh, that there is a bit of D.B. Cooper 
uh, as an archetype within all of us. That is the part of us that uh, wishes we could uh, drink bourbon and smoke cigarettes and uh, uh, sit next to a pretty stewardess and uh, go escape into the Oregon woods in a parachute. I can certainly say for myself, there's a large part of D.B. Cooper and me, and to judge from this uh, charming audience, there's certainly a great deal of it in you. Uh, thank you, and good evening. <laughs> Could you give a man a hand? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, at Ancient Portland. <laughs> Matt Love is coming up next. Matt Love. Why well, I'm gonna tell you a bit about Matt Love. Matt Love is the publisher of Nestucca Press, Nestucca Spit Press, an author editor of seven books about Oregon. In 2009, Matt Love won the Oregon Literary Arts Stuart H. Holbrook Literary Legacy Award for his contributions to Oregon history and literature. He lives in Newport and teaches English and journalism at Newport High School. He's currently working on a book about the filming of Sometimes a Great Notion. And I just want to add on a, on a personal level that one of Matt's books, The Far Out Story of Vortex One, is on the top of my list for rainy Sunday morning wake and bake reading selections. <laughs> and, and I know, I fucking know that Matt considers this a huge compliment because he's just that fucking kick out. He's that historian. So ladies and gentlemen, we've kind of trashed the stage here, Matt, but we're going to get it together. And uh, welcome, Matt Love. There's like Cooper money and Luca Bazooka's clothes <laughs> and a parachute and maybe back six. Doug, thank you rescuing history from the textbooks. Uh, as a teacher, uh, I've been teaching 20 years in public high schools in Oregon, and um, I don't know what your next, your, your next line is, but you need to be teaching history. You need to be in the classroom and making it come alive like this. And they'll appreciate all those fuck words, too. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with inserting yourself into the story of Oregon history. where you don't have to footnote it, you know? So thanks, Doug. This book, Ha Ha Ha, was published in 1983 by D.B. Cooper. He's a writer. It's a good book. Read a section. We don't really know what happened that night, but DB tells us what happened that night in this book. So I'm going to read an excerpt. And what's interesting about this book was that I'll just read this to you. This is on the back of the book. It says, Your big score, I'm giving it back to you. To you. It's true. In this book are seven clues. By reading it carefully and discovering them, the clues, one could receive as much as 200000 in $20 bills. This book came out in 1983. So here we go. This is what happened that night by D.B. Cooper. I just lost my place. <laughs> I crept slowly and cautiously down the steps, the stairs keeping a firm grip on the handrail. It was far colder than I expected. The wind pressure was fantastic. It pushed the skin on my cheeks back tightly against the bones. 
and I could feel tears being forced from the corners of my eyes. The jet's engines roared. The wind shrieked. The noise was deafening. The stairway shook and vibrated as I inched down step by careful step. My pants flapped wildly against my legs, stinging them with the intense force of the 200-mile-an-hour wind. I saw the lights of Nixon and asked myself, how far is it? Jump had to be timed correctly or I would be hiking most of the night. It was difficult to judge distance accurately from the, hair, uh, from the air, particularly in the dark. Holding tightly to the handrail, I perched precariously on the bottom step. I was anxious to jump, but persuaded myself to wait, to not get excited. I had to determine how long to stay with the plane. As the lights approached, with increasing speed, I pushed myself away from the ladder. It was a perfect push-off. I was in the clear. After a few seconds, I pulled the ripcord. The parachute opened quickly and trailed, then unfurled above me. There was a reassuring snap as my body jolted into its upright descent position. I glanced at the parachute, open in a tight mushroom, white against the darkened sky. Glancing down, the desert floor slowly floated toward me. I was now strangely relaxed. It was almost a poised co coital feeling. <laughs> poised coital feeling. He must have had an orgasm. A fucking orgasm for Doug. Every nerve ending alive and responsive, but in a lull, anxiously awaiting for the next tingle of sensation. Pretty sexy. <laughs> now, this book, there's a big score, and the premise of this book was that there are clues in the text. Seven clues. And in the text, I came across, I've read this thing about three or four times now, and there, it, it's a really great, D.B. Cooper can write. <laughs> a lot better than a lot of historians. <laughs> and there were bold, like you would read 10 pages and there would be one word that was bolded. And this went through the entire text. This chart <laughs> are the bolded letters or the words or phrases in the novel. And according to the big score, th this is the back of the book, there's a, there's a certificate <laughs> that if you read the book and are able to ascertain the seven clues, then you will be able to go and find a certificate that is somewhere in, I guess, Oregon or Washington. And then there, you will then be able to find a way to claim $200,000 that's either sitting in a safe deposit box or a bank account or something. So, <laughs> these are the bolded words in the novel, in order. There's three columns. There's, according to D.B. Cooper, there are seven clues. Now, The answer is there. For $200,000. Now, I don't need the money. <laughs> because I was once the suspect, the biggest jewel heist in Oregon history. And the statute of limitations had run out, and I was cleared of that crime. I don't need the money. <laughs> the answer is here. So use your goddamn phones, like I'm usually squashing in the classroom. And I have shattered a cell phone in my classroom at Newport High School with a sledgehammer one time. Take a picture of this. Who is the wordsmith? Who is the, the puzzle fiend? can figure this out. 
Seven clues, clearly something's going on in the text where these words are bolder. Are you looking? Are you looking for patterns? Don't look at me, look at this. <laughs> something's there. Did he write the book? What better way to throw off suspicion than to actually write a book and claim you're B.B. Cooper? And have it published and claim that you committed the crime. Here's how I did it. The whole book explains who he was. He was a petty thief. He was a drunk, a lecher. And then he pulled off his crime. He had it all set up. He parachuted down. He had a car, a house, a car waiting, gassed up. He was gone. And then he became rich. And then he wanted to give something back to the community. I'll leave this up here. Is, is anybody taking a picture of this with your phone? No. Why aren't you? Does somebody want to win $200,000? I think this is real. Thank you, Doug, for inviting me. Thank you for rescuing Oregon history from textbooks and lectures and worksheets and just fucking tests. That's what, it's not what history is. And, Many of us had a, a history teacher in high school or college that fired us up. I had one, David Horowitz at Portland State University. I wish David was here tonight. David, are you here? God damn it. He's up there. He taught me about Vortex. He's a mentor and a friend. And so 200,000 awaits. Thank you. gentlemen, Matt Love. Thank you, Mr. Love. Katie Barber is an associate professor of history at Portland State University, where she teaches Pacific Northwest history and is on the Native American Studies faculty. She wrote Death of Celilo and co-authored Nature's Northwest, the North Pacific Slope in the 20th Century, and many articles on the history of the region. From 2006 to 11, she was director of the Center for Columbia River History, a consortium that brought academic work about Columbia River history to public audiences. She is currently conducting an oral history project in partnership with the Chinook Nation, and probably most important, on RateMyProfessor.com, she ranked smoking hot. And if I've learned anything as a history student, it's that the internets don't lie. Again, one of my favorite Oregon historians, indeed, one of my mentors, and I feel so honored to share this stage on this night with Professor Katie Barber. historian I am, I'm going to admit that uh, D.B. Cooper actually leaves me a little bit bummed. Am I the only one? I am. Okay, okay. Uh, you guys are a lot nicer than the Lewis and Clark buffs, so thank you very much for not throwing anything at me. Yeah, yeah, here's the deal. This is how I read D.B. Cooper. He ruined the day before Thanksgiving for a lot of people. <laughs> and he wasn't even very good at it. Right? I don't get it. He's not mysterious. No, no. He's not daring. He instigated what was probably the scariest event in the lives of the flight crew ever. <laughs> he put dozens of people at risk. Yeah, it's not fun to think about, but that's what he did. 
He did it for a measly $200,000. And he lost the money. And let's be real, people. Spoiler alert. He died while doing it. On top of all of that, experts will tell you that this kind of behavior suggests suicidal depression. I know, I know. I don't want to bum you out. So I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to tell you that there were some heroes on that November 24th, that Wednesday in 1971. We just need to adjust the angle a little bit. I'll tell you one of the stories that, that pulls me in, that draws me. That's a story about the flight crew. I know it's not sexy. It's not. Well, actually, maybe it is. The people I'm particularly interested in are those flight attendants. Yeah, stewardesses. I think they're the people we should remember. We should remember their names. Come on, say it with me. Alice Hancock. Alice Hancock. Florence Schaffner. Come on, Florence. Age 23. Tina Mucklow, of course. The youngest one, age 22. And of all of these women, Tina was the one who had to hang out with Cooper, a creep, <laughs> the most. And she kept her cool the entire time. So, you know, if you go online and you look at histories, Doug points out, they are correct. Uh, if you go online and look at those histories, you'll, you'll um, see a lot of descriptions of Tina. They talk about her as friendly, mild-mannered, calm. Okay, on one site, she was described as tall and unconventionally pretty. Come on now. She was pretty, and she was young. She was 22 years old. Now, of course, she had to be. That was part of her job description. <laughs> In fact, that was part of any stewardess's job description in 1971. But she didn't just happen to be friendly and calm and self-possessed. No, those characteristics were part of her training. She, she was calm because she was good at her job. So were the other crew members. So, We've, we've heard little bits of the story, a little bit of the story um, about uh, Cooper handing Flora Schaffner a note. You know what she did with that note? You know what she did? If you've looked online, you know. She slipped it in her purse. Why? She thought he was making a pass at her. She's like, oh, this is like all the other guys that have made a pass at me. Now, I'll tell you something. As any woman who has ever endured a pass from somebody that she didn't really want to get a pass from, that is competency. <laughs> I'll tell you what, she probably smiled in that non-committal way, looked a little vaguely distracted, put off any kind of uh, dissing of him, uh, delayed action, and then assumed the situation would play itself out without any conflict or confrontation. Of course, that's until he told her that she had to open the note. <laughs> now, the crazy thing is that stewardesses in that day could count on being propositioned. That was part of her job. In fact, the airlines ensured that it would be part of her job. You know this story. <coughs> that's right. I've got footnotes. <laughs> you know this story. In the 1970s, the airlines decided to sell air travel as the sexy option because they had stewardesses on board. So, probably most of you don't remember this, uh, but ad copy from the early 70s from National Airlines, a stewardess saying, I'm Cheryl, fly me. <laughs> I kid you not, I kid you not. This is the environment that Flo and Alice and Tina are working in. Now, this is a familiar story. Most of you know it. 
1960s and early 70s. To work as a stewardess meant you did short time work. You didn't have a career. It meant you had to be thin. It meant you had to be young. It meant you had to be pretty. It meant you couldn't have a job after age 32. It wasn't until 1968 that most US airlines got rid of the requirement that you had to be under age 32 to be a stewardess. That's three years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act that forbid that kind of regulation. Three years. That's three years before D.B. Cooper's event. So it's not surprising that Florence or Alice or Tina would think that Cooper was simply hitting on him until he told him otherwise. You know, being pretty was part of the job, so was being friendly. And I'll tell you what, these stewardesses, they were friendly, but they were strategically friendly. <laughs> they knew what it meant to be nice. Nice was a value. Nice was something that their airlines had trained them to be. You know that kind of nice. It's now called Portland nice, <laughs> right? Right? So uh, the historians point out that women, yeah, I'm going to talk about the historians. I'm obligated to professionally. They'd take my card at the door if I didn't. Um, but historians point out that women's work was often tied into being cheerful. In fact, if you go back and you look at Victorian-era marriage guides, they'll tell you, if you're female, to do everything with a smile. You're supposed to be cheerful. You're supposed to encourage that cheerful, happy environment for your husband when he's coming home. This is part of your work. This is how you do your work well in the Victorian-era marriage. And it's not too far of a leap to see how later, a few decades later even, stewardesses would learn to and would be expected to be nice. Right? That same kind of Victorian nice. They're simply playing out Victorian gender roles in the 1970s. So their job is to create a pleasant and cheerful experience for the mostly male airline passengers. Uh, I'm going to bring up a sociologist. I know I'm going interdisciplinary on you. I'm going to even name her. A sociologist uh, by the name of Arlie Hochschild studied airline stewardesses in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, and she developed a term to talk about what they were doing. She said, it's emotional labor. She argued that workers, uh, and in her study, of course, these workers are stewardesses, were socialized or trained to present certain emotions. That's what they were doing. That was part of their job. They're supposed to... Um, uh, present certain emotions like cheerfulness, um, pleasantness, and then they were supposed to manage the emotions of other people, like those airline passengers that don't like turbulence. They were supposed to learn how to keep those people calm, or they were supposed to learn how to take passes from all those businessmen who thought that they might get lucky with some 22-year-old stewardess. It might happen. So according to Hochschild, by the 1970s, she says, one half of all working women performed emotion management, her term, as a condition of holding their jobs. And I'll tell you, a lot of professors still do. <laughs> Indeed, Delta Airlines defined stewardess cheerfulness as a sign, this is a quote, footnoted, a sign of managing problems well and being in control of the situation. Okay, so when one of the stewardesses aboard Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 brought Cooper a drink, or when Tina ferried messages between Cooper and the cockpit, or when she sat next to him and uh, agreed pleasantly, as if it was no big thing, to go to Mexico with him, All of those instances are instances of women doing their jobs well. <laughs> and they were doing it under the worst of circumstances. So Florence, at this point, was probably wishing for all those passes from businessmen. Much easier to deal with. 
I'm going to suggest something. Please don't throw drinks at me. I'm going to suggest something, and that is that we could compare Cooper's incompetence. Now, you remember, he didn't identify what kinds of bills he wanted. He got a whole bunch of 20s. He got 21 pounds of 20s that he had to figure out what to do with. We can compare Cooper's incompetence to the calm competency of Tina and her coworkers. And I think we should. I think that's the better story. So, you know that uh, the, the flight crew and all of the passengers survived the hiking, uh, uh, hijacking, that Tina Mufflow, she was hailed as a hero for a time. Uh, she didn't like the spotlight. She eventually disappeared. Um, she flew for 10 more years, huh, by about the time she was 32. when a temporary job opened into a career for a lot of women, when stewardesses actually became flight attendants, when men were more likely to be hired, and when some of the sexism that was associated with the position dissipated. Now here's where there's a big asterisk. This is a big fo footnote. A lot of those changes were because stewardesses demanded that they happen. See, history doesn't suck. <laughs> it's good stuff. Flying change, too. Now, can you imagine a flight on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving being less than half full today? <laughs> that is insane. So I'm going to recognize the interesting story that the D.B. Cooper hijacking is. But I'll tell you what. I'm going to raise my glass to stewardesses. Here's to Tina Mucklow. Thank you, Professor Barber, for bringing us the her story. And what happened next, ass kickers, will blow your mind. A mysterious man approached the stage, a man wearing dark glasses, a dark suit, and a navy back six? gentlemen, Dan Cooper himself, and his Navy back six, Jeff, his Navy back six. Wow. Oh, Paul, can you, can you really though? Now. So, uh, wow. <laughs> How you been, man? All right. And, uh, it's been a little while, man. You're, you're looking good for like 80 or 90. <laughs> Exercise. So, uh, you, you getting a microphone there? Maybe, maybe Paul's going to juice it up for you. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so where, where you been, man? Around. Around. What do you what do you got in the bag? You know. I'm a drink. Bunch of money. And some TNT. <laughs> and that was the cue. Yeah, turn it up. Tear it up. A little louder. For the brown bag crew. Right. Thinking of a master plan. I'm DB Coop, you never get me, man. So I 
buy a ticket at PDX. I got a briefcase filled with dynamite sticks. Hijack mission for suit and tie dope. 200 game reads a ransom note. I need money. I used to be an airborne kid, so what? Think of all the jumping complaints I did. I used to roll up. This is a hold up. Ain't nothing funny. Stop smiling. He's filled up. New but the money. But now I need some shoots and refuel the plane. Give me a drink and let the ass stay hang. Jump with the dope flight 305. Crazy ass wins. But I survived. Now I'm walking up the street. Whistling this, fat with cash. Cause the, the feds got shit. I'm in the news, the, the paper. paper. It's all about the caper. I'm the dangerous and I'm ghost like vapor, bitch. Stash the cash in the ditch. Columbia River. Pulled it off without a hitch. Cause I don't like to dream about getting paid. So you dig into the books of this escapade. Oh, our history. Y'all got pool. Mississippi Studios. Cause I'm paid in full. 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 D.B. Cooper is paid in full. <laughs> paid in full. Paid in full. Come get your shots. It's hot. Dean, you can bring it down. You guys fucking laughed when I said I was in a rap band. Well, that just about does it, ass kickers. Thank you for listening, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that today's special edition podcast of D.B. Cooper Night, live from Mississippi Studios, featured some kick-ass Oregon history. We want to send a huge thank you out to Mississippi Studios. Also, we'd like to thank Katie Barber, Matt Love, Ancient Portland, Jared Miles, and Oh Darling. We appreciate the help of our assistants, Melissa Lang and Chad Torrey, and we also want to recognize our D.B. Cooper Knight co-sponsors, Dave Knows PDX, Lost Oregon, and Jennifer Wells Design Glass Studio. Be sure to check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can pick up T-shirts from the D.B. Cooper Knight. You can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. Or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. To wrap up the podcast today, we're going to finish with one of the songs from Jared Miles' set from D.B. Cooper Night. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. He stay out best dog.
Thanks a lot. Hey, I didn't introduce everybody. We have Steve Hefter on guitar here, Patty King on violin. We have Dave Jones on drums, and Kyleen King on bass. Thank you very much. Fucked it up already. I'm only on like beer too. Oh, come on, man.